You may be seated. Rather famously, the summary of the terms of the Mosaic Covenant appears in Exodus chapter 20. Yahweh's expectations of the people of Israel were summarized in the form of Ten Commands. And we're all quite used to referring to them as the Ten Commandments, with a capital T and a capital C. A couple of years ago, in a missions emphasis sermon, I briefly unpacked the history of that tradition and explained that the Hebrew Bible never uses the phrase Ten Commandments to refer to this passage. The Hebrew of each of the three verses that refer back to Exodus 20 directly is to be literally translated as the Ten Words. Many students of Scripture have used the term Decalogue, which reflects the Greek Deca, Ten, and Logos, Word. Thus, Yahweh summarized His covenantal expectations of Israel in Ten Words, Ten Statements, Yes, the statements are commandments, but it's important to see the way Moses actually labels the summary as the ten words. The importance of observing this takes us back to Genesis 1. In chapter 1 of Genesis, as God's acts of creation are narrated, we will read, and God said ten times, with each one providing a quotation of the words God said to create and to shape His creation. Thus, the ten words of the law for Israel recalls the ten words of creation, the creation of all things. As we recall that the book of Genesis was originally written to instruct the Israelites in the wilderness as part of God's instruction to sustain them as they wandered for 40 years, and part of God's preparation of them to enter the promised land so that they'd know who God is, who they were, and what God has in store for them in the future. Surely they would have made the connection between God's ten words of creation and God's ten words of command. God extended His creative acts over the span of six days. This revelation scandalized many in the early church for the opposite reason it scandalizes some in today's church and world. In the early church, some students of Scripture were vexed that the Bible should suggest that the all-powerful God would take so long to finish His work of creation. Today, both skeptics of Scripture and many faithful students of Scripture are troubled that God finished His work of creation in so short a time. The early church Bible readers thus often questioned whether the sequence of six days might mean something other than that God actually extended His work of creation for that long. But they raised this question because of the Bible's portrayal of God's powerful creative Word. For example, Hebrews 11.3 tells us plainly, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Either that statement by itself affirms the traditional doctrine of creatio ex nihilo, a Latin phrase that means creation out of nothing, or at bare minimum, it suggests that God might have created out of invisible things. 
But in line with the rest of Scripture's testimony about creation, we can and should believe that God created everything out of nothing. Or to borrow Paul's phrase from Romans 4.17, God is the one who calls into existence the things that do not exist. Students of Scripture throughout history have recognized that the Bible affirms that God simply speaks things into existence. And the author of Hebrews indicates that we can understand this by faith. We may not be able to prove through scientific exploration that God created the universe out of no pre-existing matter, but that should not trouble us. The origin of the universe defies scientific exploration. Our first pursuit in all of this as Christians should be to seek to understand what the scriptures teach us about God's creation of everything. Scientific attempts to explain the origin of the universe can only properly be built on recognizable evidence. But inevitably, assumptions are going to influence the way the evidence is organized and interpreted. That's not necessarily a bad thing. We all have assumptions. But if those assumptions are directly contradicted by Scripture, then they should be abandoned. If that leaves scientific explorations of origins handicapped then let the handicap be acknowledged. But to return to the point, theologians of the early church were not attempting to conform their understanding of Genesis 1 to scientific theories about the origin of the universe. They were often dialoguing with other philosophical ideas, such as the idea that matter was eternal. But more often than not, they struggled with taking Genesis 1 as a straightforward narrative of God creating the world and everything in it in the span of six normal days because they rightly believed that God did not require that much time. In their minds, God would seem greater if he had created everything in a single moment. Thus, many in the early church proposed various ways of reading Genesis 1 that strayed from seeing it as a straightforward historical narrative account. Today, genuine believers who are seeking to understand the Scriptures faithfully have come to view Genesis 1 as anything but a straightforward historical narrative account. And many of them are doing so because they have become convinced that scientific theories about the origin of the universe have reached a level of consensus that could never fit with the sequence of creation narrated in Genesis 1, among other things. Many of these theologians and apologists are incredibly influential, excellent communicators, and faithful defenders of the faith in other areas of Christian doctrine. Given the controversy, perhaps you can appreciate why I've been praying and thinking about how to preach the book of Genesis for well over two years now. Last week, I introduced the term protology, which I defined as the study of first things, This is broader than the doctrine of creation alone, but it does suggest a number of doctrines that are rooted particularly in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. As we consider Genesis 1, several interpretive difficulties face us. I want to acknowledge that faithful Christian interpreters see a number of the details differently. However, there are certain places that I will draw a line in sand. While we can still be siblings in Christ and come to different conclusions about some of these things, there are some hills that are worth dying on in the broader subject. As we looked at last week, these opening chapters of the Bible provide the beginning of the gospel. And that phrase applies to the whole book of Genesis 
in a number of ways. But insofar as some of these protology teachings shape the gospel itself, to reject such teaching will result in major distortion of the gospel itself. I'll try to make clear what fits in that category and what shouldn't. Last week, we focused on the first two verses. We saw the absolute beginning in Genesis 1-1, and I suggested that verse 1 states God's creation of two places. Heaven, the invisible realm where God and other heavenly beings live, and earth, which becomes the focus of the rest of chapter 1. Verse 2 then described the initial state of earth, a dark, watery wasteland. But God's Spirit was actively holding it all together, preparing us, readers, to anticipate God's speaking and God's instilling of life. In verse 3, then, we read the words, and God said for the first time, first of ten times. I believe verses 1 through 5 should all be considered a part of day one of creation. We'll consider the first three days today and the next three days next Sunday. There is a kind of symmetry to God's acts of creation, though those of you who have studied this topic shouldn't hear me in any way affirming any versions of the framework hypothesis. Rather, as one commentator helpfully expresses it, a parallel arrangement is found for the six days. The opening three days change the barren earth into a land that produces vegetation, and the final three days inundate the empty terrain with life above and below. We shall begin, appropriately, with day one, on which the focal point seems to be the creation of time. Let's read verses one to five, but we'll focus our attention this morning on verses three to five. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, And there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. God's first creative word centers on the creation of light, but he names the light day. When you count the number of references to light and day, In these verses, you get a total of seven. We observed a fascinating pattern of sevens throughout this first unit in Genesis, down through chapter 2, verse 3, and here appears to be another intentional one. The primary pattern of creation is here established. God speaks, and whatever he speaks happens. Earth began, as verse 2 tells us, empty, dark, watery, To address the darkness that was over the face of the deep, God introduces light. But notice that the light doesn't eliminate the darkness. Instead, it alternates with the darkness. Indeed, these first three days focus very much on divine separations, as the sermon title suggests. So what actually happened here? What's being described As has always been observed, God doesn't create Earth's major light sources until the fourth day. The scientific conundrum has always been the reality that we measure day and night by the relative positions of our planet and the sun. Thus, our experience of day and night 
is that half of our planet has light, while at the same time, the other half of our planet is in darkness. We tend to assume our experience back into this description that the separation of light and darkness is spatial. But pay attention to the details of verses 3 to 5. Try not to add anything extra and use your imagination. God has created a dark earth. God speaks. Literally, he says, there is to be light. Light appears. God assesses the light as good, and then he separates the light from the darkness. Now, if we stopped there, our only frame of reference would be our experience of separating light from darkness in a physical sense. Think of what happens when you turn your headlights on at night, or what happens when you shine a flashlight in a dark room. Light shines from our light source straight ahead, and where the light travels, there is no darkness, right? The darkness remains on the outside of the beam of light. But we can't stop there in Genesis 1. The next statement is key. God assigns a name to the light. He calls it day. Then he assigns a name to the darkness. He calls it night. Now let's pause and back up for just a second. With our illustration of a flashlight or car headlights, we had to deal with a light source. But famously, there is no light source, no created light source mentioned on day one. Now, could there be an uncreated light source? 1 John 1.5 says that God is light. Now, that's a metaphor, but the Bible repeatedly speaks of God's glory as something that shines out of God himself. And Revelation 21.23 is probably relevant, particularly as we remember that there is a relationship between protology, first things, and eschatology, last things. There we read about the new Jerusalem, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Thus, I suggest that Genesis 1-3 indicates that God emanated light from himself over the whole dark earth. Thus, when he names the light day, he indicates that this light shone for a period of time, a period Moses' readers would understand as the daylight hours. Likewise, when he names the darkness night, he indicates that the light emanating from God ceased shining for a period of time a period Moses' readers would understand as the nighttime hours. Thus, on day one, God created time. Moses then tells us that God saw the light and assessed it uh, to be good. We'll see this assessment repeated seven times over the course of the six days. Now, perhaps you notice that it doesn't say that God saw the darkness and indicated it was good. One commentator suggests that this is an indication that God is, as it were, prejudiced in favor of light. Perhaps it hints toward the reality we glanced at last week, that later in Scripture and later in history, darkness will become associated with evil and death. But here, in the beginning, darkness is not identified as not good, but neither is it assessed as good initially. God indicates his sovereignty over both light and darkness by naming them. Finally, we get the refrain that concludes each of the first six days. 
and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Some have suggested that the sequence evening and then morning indicates a normal 24-hour day, observing how Jewish people later thought of their days as beginning at sundown each day. But there isn't a sun yet. And another point seems to be more significant. Evening and morning brackets nighttime. So God shone his light, which he named day. Then evening came when he restrained the shining of his light so that the darkness returned, which he named night. And then morning would come as the transition to the second day when God would resume shining his light on the earth. Thus the measuring of time began when God began shining his light into the darkness of earth. And this began the ordinary pattern that Moses' readers were accustomed to. Daylight, evening, nighttime, morning, even prior to the creation of the sun and the moon. Thus, for the first three days of creation, God guided the progress of time with the alternation of light and darkness, daytime and nighttime. But then, starting on the fourth day, he will delegate that responsibility to the familiar light bearers, the sun and the moon. One last matter concerns us on day one. Let me draw your attention to the New American Standards translation of the last sentence of verse 5. And there was evening and there was morning one day. If you're reading the NASB, you'll see that each of the day notices has a difference from the ESV and pretty much all other English translations. For example, down at the end of verse 8, the NASB reads, a second day, whereas most versions read, the second day. In this case, the New American Standard Bible is more precisely literal in its translation. And regardless of their advertising and marketing, that's not always true. But in this case, it's a helpful thing to observe, especially here on day one. Commentators have often noticed that verse 5 uses the Hebrew word for one rather than the Hebrew word for first, despite most of our English translations having the English word first. Is that important? Quite possibly. Moses may have chosen to write one day instead of the first day in order to suggest that what he just described in the sequence of day, evening, night, morning is how we are to understand the meaning of the word day. And of course, this, one, this is one of the major debate points in studying this chapter. Here's the point. Human beings in all cultures, including us today, recognize that a day is measured in approximately 24 hours because of the rhythm of the perceived movement of the sun. Even with our technological precision in measurement and our recognition that the earth is actually making a circuit around the sun in a 24-hour period, we still speak of sunrise and sunset. And tomorrow's sunrise will be about 24 hours after today's sunrise. What Genesis 1, 3 to 5 teaches us is actually that God defines a single day on this planet as the alternation between a period of light called day and a period of darkness called night. And we'll see in verses 14 to 19 on the fourth day of creation that God creates the sun and the moon to regulate day and night for us so that he doesn't continue to do that work himself. But on the first three days of creation, God himself directly rules over the day and the night by shining light 
apparently from himself, for a period of time, and then shutting that light off for a period of time. On the fourth day, because he delegates that ruling authority over to the sun and the moon, physical objects that impact the way light and darkness is experienced on this planet, we can understand how the position of the earth in relationship to the sun and the moon at any given point during the day makes a difference and will be experienced differently depending on where someone is located on the planet. God doesn't explain that in Scripture. He leaves us to discover that through scientific exploration, but such observation in no way contradicts challenges or creates tensions with anything we see in Genesis 1. Now, whether or not it's legitimate to translate the Hebrew phrase one day as first day is debatable. Thus, by itself, the fact that Moses wrote one instead of the normal Hebrew word for first is not a slam-dunk argument for seeing the days of Genesis 1 as reflecting 24-hour days. However, I believe the repeated refrain, and there was evening and there was morning, in context of everything else, does strongly suggest ordinary 24-hour days. Christian philosopher William Lane Craig, in his recent book, In Quest of the Historical Adam, agrees. He writes, The pattern of evening and morning shows that ordinary solar days, not long ages, are intended. Moreover, the fact that the successive mornings represent in each case the dawning of the consecutive day shows that no gaps between the days are contemplated. Case closed? Not so fast. Concluding that Genesis intends to speak of normal 24-hour days here isn't enough to convince Professor Craig and many other students of Scripture throughout church history that this is reflecting what actually happened. Dr. Craig represents a number of Christian scholars who have affirmed that Genesis really does speak of God creating everything in the space of six 24-hour days. But then they wave the magic wand of genre and say that Moses wasn't intending to communicate what actually happened. Sorry for the snark. I've been accused of waving the magic genre wand, particularly when I remind folks of a particular passage being poetry. So, all's fair, love and war, or something to that effect. However, I do believe that this is one of those places where the genre of the text is not terribly debatable. It is relatively clear. There are some passages of Scripture that are a little bit unclear as to whether they're poetry or something else, or history or something else. Professor Craig, in his book, goes to great lengths to suggest that Genesis 1 through 11 represents a kind of non-historical myth, while Genesis 12 transitions to ordinary historical narrative. When pressed, Dr. Craig has been unable to provide textual reasons from within Genesis that suggest a change in genre, and I certainly can't see any shifts in style at chapter 12. Moreover, when Dr. Craig seeks to explain why he views chapters 1 through 11 of Genesis as non-historical, his primary reasons boil down to the, quote, fantastic nature of some of what is narrated. Fantastic, a word that appears 59 times in this book, and he defines that as palpably false. Those are his words. Palpably false. So what does he mean by fantastic? He means unbelievable, and therefore certainly could not have actually historically happened. 
Thus, even as he recognizes that the days of Genesis 1 are certainly represented by the author as ordinary 24-hour days, he sees this as, quote, fantastic and therefore mythological. Sadly, his approach is increasingly common. William Lane Craig is a brilliant man, and I believe he is a godly, honest scholar. His work on the historicity historicity of Jesus' resurrection has been personally helpful to me. However, I cannot follow his work at this point. His expertise in philosophy and its ease is, is in philosophy, and it's easy for abstract philosophy based on human reason to overwhelm one's interpretation of Scripture inappropriately. Also, it's important to recognize that Dr. Craig, like many who share his perspective on this issue or pave other ways uh, to wave the magic genre wand over Genesis 1 in order to suggest that it's not actually intending to tell us anything about material creation, bring a preconceived acceptance of the scientific consensus about origins to the text of Scripture. I hope to encourage and model a better approach. So, as we come to the end of day one, what do we learn? God created heaven, the invisible realm where he and other heavenly beings live, and earth, a dark, watery, lifeless wasteland. And he spoke, decreeing light from himself to shine as the onset of time. The light would shine for a period, which God defined as daytime, and then a period of nighttime continued, the total of which made up the first day, which defines the concept of a day for us. What happens next? Day two deals with another separation, the separation of the waters. Look at verses 6 through 8. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. As we recall from verse 2, earth is a watery wasteland. Darkness had been over the face of the deep, and the deep referred to this watery reality. What is under the surface of the waters, we are not told initially. Here on the second day, God gets to work, again, by speaking, in order to begin moving water around. He decrees something that will serve as a separator, so that some water will be above this separator and some water will be below this separator. In verse 7, the important creation word made gets used for the first time. Unlike the Hebrew word bara, translated create, which only God does in the Bible, this Hebrew word is asa, and people can be the subject of this verb. This word has a wide range of meaning, but it doesn't specify the how of making something. It can refer to manufacturing something through some kind of process, even utilizing technology of some kind, and it can certainly refer to shaping some raw material into something else. The word can be translated make, manufacture, or produce. It's also the basic Old Testament word meaning to do something. Here I think we have genuine creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. God speaks this separator into existence. But what is this separator? In my opinion, this is one of the most challenging mysteries of the creation account to pin down. Students of Scripture of all persuasions have debated and discussed the meaning of the word the ESV translates an expanse. The Hebrew is 
rakia. And it isn't used very often in the Old Testament, which makes pinning down its meaning a challenge. In addition, the precise identification of the waters above this rakia is debated. Even creationist theologians and scientists have generated various theories on this point, and I'd say there's not much of a consensus. But let's start with what the text actually says. In verse 8, God names this separator heaven, as the ESV says. I suggested last week that the ESV footnote is better. Sky. As we observed last week, this is the same exact Hebrew word that the ESV elsewhere translates as heavens, including back in verse 1. In verse 1, I argued that Moses intends a reference to heaven with a capital H. That is, the invisible realm where God and other heavenly beings live. What we see here in verses 6 to 8 being named with the same Hebrew word is a part of the earth. Verse 2 shifted our focus to the watery mass referred to as earth. And now, on day two, God is dealing with the waters of the earth into which he is going to insert something new, what we might call the earthly heaven, or in English, the sky. Whereas verse one referred to what the Old Testament refers to several times as the heaven of heavens, or the highest heaven. But in English, we have a problem to consider here, and I think it's a problem that every Hebrew reader would have had as well. When we look up at the sky, what do we see? Well, we see what appears to be blue space, we see clouds, we see birds, we see the sun, moon, and stars. And all of that has relevance to what we're talking about. Thus, on the fourth day, when God creates the sun, moon, and stars, he set them, verse 17 says, in the expanse of the heavens. Three times that exact phrase, expanse of the heavens, is used in verses 14 to 18. It's interesting to notice that after God names the rakia sky or the uh, sky or the heavens or heaven, that's not what Moses calls it. He calls it the rakia of the sky or the sky rakia. In any case, it's clear that he's referring to the separator God made on the second day. Then in verse 20, God calls for birds to fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. The phrase translated across actually reflects the same phrase we saw back in verse 2, translated on the face of. Thus, birds are said to fly above the earth, but also on the face of this separator. Thus far, no problem, right? We look up at the sky and we see birds flying and we see the sun, moon, and stars. But when we come to remembering what the sky is said to be separating, we run into some trouble. There are waters above the sky. So we have a sky that has, or that will have on day four, the sun, moon, and stars in it, and birds flying on its face, and there are waters above it. This has led to speculation that there may be waters at the outer edge of the universe, which of course haven't been discovered through scientific exploration yet. Respected creationist astronomer Dr. Danny Faulkner, who writes for Answers in Genesis, theorizes along these lines. One of the main objections to this theory is that the waters above then would have no reference point for either the original readers or ordinary human observers. I think this is important. What else can we say? Well, the noun is related to a verb that's got a very clear meaning. The verb occurs just a few times, but it clearly describes the action of hammering or beating something out into a thin sheet. 
usually some kind of metal, gold, silver, or bronze. For example, gold is beaten into thin sheets to overlay parts of the tabernacle. Thus, we can start with this physical idea and see if it helps us. So far, we can say that perhaps the noun refers to something typically solid or something that's stretched out as a kind of sheet and perhaps has a metallic look to it. Maybe. Outside of references associated with Genesis 1, the noun rakia appears several times as the prophet Ezekiel describes his amazing vision of God's glory, seated on his throne chariot, being carried away out of the temple, out of Jerusalem, by cherubim. For example, Ezekiel 1.22 says, Over the heads of the living creatures there was the likeness of rakia, shining like awe-inspiring crystal, spread out above their heads. Now, Ezekiel's trying to describe what he saw, and it's outside of his normal everyday experience. So he's describing these living creatures, these heavenly beings, as holding up something above their heads, which is holding up God sitting on his throne above it. He compares what, they're, what the living creatures are holding up to crystal. So it's shiny and translucent. Commentator Dan Block translates rakia here as platform. So think about a crystalline platform, like a stage. That could be just a flat surface, or it could be three-dimensional. But the only other places outside of Ezekiel that this word is used are in Genesis 1 or in passages that are talking about the sky. On the second day of creation, God indicates that this sheet or platform will serve to separate waters so that there will be waters above the sheet or platform and there will be waters below it. The waters below are what will become the seas on the third day. So consider this. This is my speculative attempt to follow the text, follow the sequence. Day two begins with God shining his light onto the dark, watery mass, and he speaks into existence a physical separator or barrier of some kind, drawing up some water above the barrier. Thus, the waters sit on top of the barrier on day two. When day four comes, God creates the sun, moon, and stars and sets them inside the barrier. Consider a hypothetical thought experiment. Use your imagination again. What if, when God put the sun, moon, and stars inside the barrier, he necessarily stretched it out, expanded it to accommodate the sun, moon, and stars? Thus, the sheet or platform gets stretched into an expanse on day four. If we follow the sequence, if this is a viable theory, then the waters above the expanse on day two remain above the expanse on day four, but God stretched the expanse upward in order to place the sun, moon, and stars, which would then be above the waters. The only other direct reference to these waters appears in Psalm 148.4. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. If this way of thinking about what's being described is on target, it supports the translation of rakia as expanse, and then God's naming of this expanse as sky, which every reader would recognize as what they see when they look up outside. 
which then also fits with the reality of seeing birds flying in front of the sun, moon, and stars. But what exactly are the waters above the expanse then? God doesn't name the waters above. There have been four main views. Number one, a water vapor canopy. Number two, a vaulted sea. Number three, clouds. Or number four, a cosmic shell. That's what Dr. Danny Faulkner was talking about, a cosmic shell. Well, with the majority of students of Scripture throughout the ages, as far as I can tell, and the majority of creation scientists today, we can say that these waters are most likely referring to clouds. As Professor Vern Poitras writes, the expression waters that were above the expanse primarily designates water above a cloudy sky, that is, water inside clouds, whose lower side is the sky. What's the point then? If God created time on day one, on day two, God created weather. Christian astrophysicist Dr. Jason Lyle affirms this, simply defining clouds as liquid droplets in suspension that are above the expanse from our perspective. Now, back in Genesis 1-8, at the conclusion of day two, notice what is missing. There is no assessment that God saw that what he had made is good. Now, as an analogy, if the first day of the week is Sunday, then day two is what? Monday? Bruce Waltke, commentator Bruce Waltke, humorlessly comments in a footnote in his commentary, even God did not say that Mondays were good. (laughs) Now, I think there's actually a simple explanation for why there's no assessment of good beyond the humor of it all. God's not done with the waters. He's not done separating the waters. On day three, he'll do another act of separation, which will then be followed by the assessment of good. When we see his dealings with water carry over into day three, we can hold the second and third days of creation together, and then we can count the references to water and find out that there are a total of seven. Yes. (laughs) The one very common perspective on day two that I haven't yet mentioned is that the rakia is referring to a solid dome, reflecting the way other ancient cultures outside Israel thought about creation. I haven't included discussion of that reality very much, comparison with other ancient cultures' understanding of creation yet, but it has become increasingly common to compare the Genesis creation account with other accounts of creation written by Israel's neighbors, ancient civilizations like Egypt, Babylon, Ugarit. The comparative work that students of Scripture have done in my lifetime has been wonderfully helpful and illuminating. We have a greater awareness of the mental framework that ancient Israelites were likely to have had, or at least what kinds of ideas were commonly held by people living around them and interacting with them. Recall also that Israel had just come out of living in Egypt for several generations when Genesis was being written and shared with them. Thus, it would be highly surprising if their experience in Egypt hadn't shaped some of their ideas and worldview. I believe the book of Genesis was written by Moses under the direct guidance of the Holy Spirit of the God of Israel. I expect that some of the parallel culture's ideas might be reflected in Genesis, but I also expect that God would correct what wasn't true. So I'm not particularly keen on bringing those comparative ideas into sermons, though we will have good reason to examine some of them at certain points. Now, I could have probably left all that out. I didn't for one particular reason. 
The ancient Near Eastern idea about the universe being structured with a physical solid dome above the earth is reflected in the use, the use of the English word firmament to translate rakia in this passage in the King James Version. Firmament comes straight out of the Latin firmamentum, which refers to something solid. This reflects the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which chose a Greek word that refers to something solid to create, to, to translate rakia. That's partially because the Greek-speaking Jews who translated the Old Testament had been influenced by Greek philosophy, which included the idea of a stony vault above the earth. We don't need to hold on to the term firmament when it gives the wrong impression about an aspect of creation. Well, enough about the waters above the sky. What's God going to do with the rest of the waters? Day 3 focuses on land. Look at verses 9 to 13. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. On the third day, we have two speeches of God and two assessments of good. Again, God's creative actions are acts of separation. He speaks in verse 9, decreeing that the waters under the sky should assemble, gather together, and the dry land should become visible. Now, it's unclear whether we should conclude that the dry land was already under the surface of the waters or whether God's speaking produced the dry land um, as the waters made room for it. I take it that the dry land was there all along, since day one, underneath the surface of the watery mass. God names the dry land earth, and he names the waters seas. The word translated earth is the same word we saw back in verses 1 and 2. Throughout the Old Testament, the word is used to refer to the entire planet we live on, as well as a particular region of territory, as in the land of Israel, and also land as the opposite of sea. I would translate the term here as land with a capital L. Land and seas make up the primary regions of travel for human beings in the ancient world. Air travel wouldn't become a reality until thousands of years later. Moreover, at this point in, on day three, God has completed his initial three acts of separation that set up the primary spheres of life for human beings, time and space. After assessing both land and seas as good, God speaks again and decrees that the land that just got cleared of, of water is going to do something. The land is going to sprout vegetation. More literally, we could translate the phrase, vegetate vegetation. Plants with seed and trees with fruit are specified. Skeptics who struggle to see this as a possible historical account balk at the possibility of the land sprouting such plants and such trees. Even more fantastic is to suggest that they will have produced fruit fit for eating in three days' time. Christians who believe in a God who performs miracles, however those be defined, should have no problem believing 
this straightforward historical narrative that indicates that God caused mature trees to sprout from the ground in a single day with no seeds previously planted, and that God caused these mature trees to have edible fruit ready within the span of three days, even prior to the existence of the normal expected requirements for plant life, things such as light and heat from the sun, rainfall from the sky, and whatever else fits with our normal experience of growing things. What is harder to see in English is the multiplication of seed language in these verses. The word translated seed gets some emphasis in chapter 1. In these two verses, and then in verse 29, when the word reappears as all of this is given to humanity for food, the Hebrew word for seed will occur a total of 10 times. While in this chapter, the word refers to seed-bearing plants, the word will recur throughout the book of Genesis, carrying the major thread of the book. In many key passages, it is this word that will be translated as offspring. It's almost as though by this repetition, Moses is giving us a little teaser of what's to come. Another phrase introduced here that will occur ten times by the end of chapter 1 is according to its kind. The significance of this is well expressed by commentator Kenneth Matthews, who writes, Just as separations are integral to creation, so are distinctions among living beings as indicated by their kinds. Creation and procreation, according to kind, indicates that God has established parameters for creation. The separations and the distinctions reflected in these first three days of creation are all assessed as good. God has made earth's dry land productive for the sake of the animals and the people that will populate the land three days afterward. In these first three days of creation, God is preparing a place for his people. As we come to the end of the third day, I am aware of something frustrating. I have hardly mentioned Jesus in this sermon. Part of the reason for this is that I have chosen to focus on a small part of a full unit of text. We haven't actually gotten to the main point, Moses' main point, in telling the story here. Nevertheless, I have felt it necessary to take it slow, to zoom in on the details carefully with you, and to conclude, I will pull on a thread in the tapestry. Do you get that image? We might think about the Bible as a magnificent tapestry that portrays Jesus. When you come up close to examine the details of the tapestry, you can see individual colored threads that make up the larger picture. If you were to pull on one of those threads that's maybe off to the side, you would find it pulling toward the center so that you can see how even an individual thread that looks like from a distance, it's just part of the border or the background, is actually connected to the centerpiece image. The first three days of creation are focused on God's acts of separation. He separated light from darkness, waters above from waters below, and land from seas. These separations made way for the productivity of the land that will be essential for life on this planet. Thus, we could see these separations as foreshadowing God's gracious separations. And this thread does indeed take us to Jesus. The connecting point between these separations of creation and the separations related to Jesus comes by way of Leviticus 20, 24 to 26. I am Yahweh your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean 
You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, Yahweh, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. This is a summary statement which points back to Leviticus 11, the famous chapter in which the Lord lists animals that the people of Israel were to consider as clean and unclean, which animals they could eat and which ones they couldn't. Separation has to do with holiness. For Israel, the rationale for their dietary laws had to do with the fact that Yahweh had separated them from all other nations. That is to say, he chose them. We see this played out in the book of Genesis when he appears to the pagan Abram. The people of Israel are to recognize distinctions that God has defined. That's what verse 25 means. The ESV, for some reason, translates the same Hebrew word as separate at the beginning of verse 25, but set apart at the end of verse 25. If we were to review Leviticus 11, we won't, we could discuss the separation of animals as clean versus unclean. We'd notice then that the animals that are listed are animals from the same habitats we see separated out in the first three days of creation, land, water, and sky. As one writer forges the connection for us here, creation was the product of God making distinctions. This divine function is to be continued by Israel, the priests to teach it and the people to practice it. The separation of the animals into the pure and the impure is both a model and a lesson for Israel to separate itself from the nations. Now, as I'm sure you all know and are quite happy about, Jesus declared all foods clean so that we're not bound to the categorical distinctions laid out in Leviticus 11. But can't the distinctions made there still teach us something about holiness? As we see God putting everything in its proper place, separating and arranging material He created from nothing just by speaking, shouldn't we recognize an aspect of His holiness that we as followers of Jesus should and can imitate? If God chose Israel, separating them from other nations, how much more is it true that God has chosen us in Christ in order to separate us from the world? Paul explains in Ephesians 1.4 that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. You see, before, before God got to work making the separations that we've read about in Genesis this morning... He had already chosen us for holiness in Christ. He had already separated us out in His plan. Jesus told His disciples in John 15, 19, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. But both election and holiness have both a from and a to component. Do you get what I mean? If God chose us out of the world, He also chose us for, to, Himself. And if holiness means set apart or separated from what is unholy, unclean, then it also means separated to God or separated for God's purposes. Jesus Himself, as our great high priest, was separated from sinners, according to Hebrews 7.26. Yet He gave His life, His sinless life, for sinners so that we would never be separated from His love, as Romans 8.39 says. Jesus is the great separator. 
even as we have seen that all things were created by him, through him, and for him in previous sermons, we can acknowledge his involvement in the divine separations of the first three days of creation here in the beginning. Moreover, when he comes again at the end, he will be the great separator then too. And Jesus said in Matthew 25, 32, describing what will happen when he comes in his glory, before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Don't wait for that final separation. If you haven't trusted Christ for salvation, today is the day. Be among the sheep who will on that final day enter the new creation. Don't be among the goats who will on that final day be separated out into outer darkness eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Flee from the wrath to come. Separate from the world and be joined to Christ forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you again for revealing some of these things to us in your word. You've told us about creation for particular reasons, and we're thankful that you would reveal these things to us. We could not figure these things out through scientific exploration. We could not figure these things out through normal human means. And so we thank you that you've given us something to build the foundation and the framework of our living in this world that you created. We thank you for your word and how it teaches us not only about the world you made, but about you as the creator your character, your power, your love, your grace. And we see it here, even in these things that have been swirling in controversy throughout church history. Help us to look through that and past that and not to get distracted, but to stay focused on what you have told us, what you have said. Help us to work diligently to see it clearly and to understand it rightly. Give us great grace also as we interact with people who see things differently. Help us to be humble and teachable as we talk about these things with other people. Help us to understand that the most important thing is that you have sent a savior to redeem this world such as it is. That there's hope for the brokenness of the world that we haven't yet read about, but we will soon. Thank you for solving the remedy. Thank you for providing a promise of a new creation. Help us to fix our hope properly on your son's return and on the consummation of all that you have promised to do in producing for us a new world, a new earth that will live on forever in resurrected bodies. Give us grace to see that, to prioritize that in our thinking and to have it shape the way that we live. For Jesus' sake, amen. Be seated for some announcements.